Hello, a little word of warning that this podcast contains swears and use of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18. Or anyone who thinks a doula involves pistols at dawn. I'm ahead of the game. Hello all and welcome back to Smut Drop. This is your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane and on this week's show I'll be looking at why an orgasm is better than coffee, talking to Jem Coker about sex after childbirth and I'll be reading your messages and missives about your own experience of postpartum nookie. And I hope you're ready, because I'm about to wake you up before you go. Oh, oh, oh. Hello, 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 dear listener. Okay, quick question. Do you think an orgasm is better than coffee? Well, they both get you up in the morning. Am I right? Hey? <laughs> well, yeah, that is actually what we're talking about here. Because according to a study by Lalo, nearly half of Brits claim that they're more productive when they're having regular orgasms. And 75 of us feel less stressed after climaxing. And yeah, I can attest it is definitely one of the better ways to start your day. And it doesn't just see you through the morning. Nearly 20% of Brits claim they still enjoy the benefits of an orgasm up to a day later. And 4% say the effects of an orgasm can be reaped up to two days later. Oh, lucky 4%. Uh, Now, obviously, the orgasm gap rears its ugly head again because 71% of men claim their productivity was boosted after climaxing as opposed to 50% of women. Come on, girls, give yourself a little bit of time in the morning. So maybe this is something that employers should be incorporating into their workday. After all, companies are already contemplating a four-day week, which is exactly what Lilo does. Staff have four days a year in addition to annual leave to fulfil themselves sexually. Oh, that's what I call a bonk holiday. <laughs> Spokesman Luka Matovinich said, we thought it would be interesting to find out how this really impacts people's day-to-day life and explore what benefits could arise from more people having more opportunities to love themselves. Oh, I love that. Four days a year just to have a wank. Brilliant. The fact that something so simple as an orgasm could affect, and positively so, the economies worldwide was not that big of a surprise because we did similar research in the UK a few years back, they found. Mm. So would an orgasm a day help keep your procrastination away? Why don't you find out more by heading over to the article Forget Morning Coffee, Have an Orgasm to Boost Productivity over at metro.co.uk. But not after my fabulous chat with this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this week's guest is on a mission to help people rediscover their sexuality after childbirth and beat away at the difficult framework a lot of people find themselves in after they become a parent. After nine years as a doula, they're now a pleasure coach, expert and sex worker. It's Jem Coker. Hello, Jem. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. This is a really important topic that I get very fired up on. 
Brilliant. I'm very happy to hear that. And I think a lot of people will also be quite relieved because it just doesn't seem to be something that many people can talk about. Well, there are a lot of persistent taboos that kind of um, radiate around the whole experience of parenthood, especially motherhood. Um, I mean, if you think about the fact that just like non-male genitals are already such a massive, massive taboo and that there was like a historical movement and like various church movements that were based around like real um, concerted erasure of language and physiology and biological understandings of these organs as pleasure organs. And there were things that were just taken out of our vocabulary and then, you know, I'm I'm a somewhat young person, right? I'm 30, but even I grew up in like a very sex oppressed culture um, in Wisconsin, in the United States, and there was a lot of um, what I call information suppression. Mm. So that you know, now as an adult, even as a doula, you know, a practicing doula for nine years, and as an escort and sex worker, I still learn new things every day. Where I go, huh? Why didn't I know that before about a certain STI or about you know certain little health check marks along the way or certain um, oh I didn't know that that was called the vestibule or I didn't know that those were called like the vestibular bulb. You know, you you grab these little tidbits of information and I feel like sometimes people feel like they're strapping things together just on a baseline level with their bodies to begin with. Mm. But when you add the added taboo of childbirth, which is something that we're supposed to not speak about, and and doesn't really get handed down for most people in an ancestral legacy that's based around anything but fear, you know, and talking about, okay, this is a, something to be afraid of. And it's something that's extremely painful. That's the most of the gist of what people get from childbirth kind of pre looking into childbirth education. And then, you know, when you add onto that, this whole desexualization of mothers, like, whereas dads are supposed to have like dad bod or like you're supposed to be attracted to dads, like in this weird hetero culture, this idea is that some somebody having, you know, a fatherly role makes them a more sexualized figure. Whereas like, how many people do you interact with on a daily basis? I don't know. I don't interact with that many who are looking at mothers around them and being like, oh, so sexy and sensual. And like, why not? And it's certainly not young mothers, it's not, certainly not mothers of young children. It's mothers of like 16 year old boys that are MILFs, isn't it? It's all the ones that have gotten a bit older. Yes. So they're, they're freer of their responsibilities. But in the meantime, in that fractious moment between giving birth and having to be the caregiver, oh, niente, none shall pass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so odd. It's like a, it's like a, it's a liminal space. It's sort of a black box. It's like a cocoon that people enter where they sort of like dissemble themselves and like dissolve into a goo, which is for me as a doula, like accompanying birth and accompanying postpartum, dissolving into a goo as a parent, a new parent, especially, and looking at your life and looking at your body and going, I don't know what this is anymore. I don't remember who I am. I don't remember what happened 10 minutes ago. I can't forecast to the future, like being in this totally like unfilled filtered, like symphonic, exempt, like exhausted present. That's something that I see as a hallmark of the rite of passage experience of parenthood. And it's something that's really profound and exciting for me to normalize for people because in that dissolution, there is the possibility and the potentiality for 
reassembling yourself into a completely new being. And one, for example, in the cocoon metaphor with freaking wings, <laughs> like you have like totally new superpowers as a parent that I feel that that type of experience of falling apart is actually edging you towards and inviting you into. And I'm much more interested in helping people use the falling apart phase as a portal as a portal which they can enter and actually make it out through to the other side. That's what interests me. I feel like with lack of resources, lack of community support, and lack of an understanding of the spiritual and soulful rite of passage experience of birth and the postpartum time, I feel people are floundering and they're getting caught and stuck in this kind of sticky, confused zone and not really finding their way out. So let's go back to, I really want to talk about this, this cocoon phase, because I, I love that going from this cocoon, this caterpillar, becoming that primordial goo, and then bringing yourself out as a sexual butterfly. But let's start looking at you as a doula. Like, first of all, please explain what a doula is for those people who don't know, and how you went from doula to, to pleasure coach. Absolutely. So while a midwife or a doctor is the primary medical care provider at most births, a doula is a non-medical care provider for birth. So if you haven't been around birth or you can't picture that so much, a doula might be providing massage, they might be rubbing someone's lower back, squeezing their hips, providing comfort. They might be encouraging them to shift and change position every now and then. They might be giving them sips of water, giving them, you know, cool fruit to eat. That just sounds like someone I need to have in my life on a Friday night. <laughs> I know. And I'm trying to, I'm really trying to normalize actually bringing doulas to like gynecology appointments or like to, you know, a, a cancer screening that you're nervous about. Um, and, you know, doulas accompany abortions, doulas accompany death. Um, doulas don't just accompany dying people, but they also accompany bereaved people through the experience of losing loved ones. Um, we can often provide logistical information uh, and help people organize resources. We can um, help them reach out to community and build networks of support around them in addition to us. And basically, we're just, you know, fountains of knowledge. We're always interested in physiology, even though we're not providing medical support. We're usually very, um, very adept at understanding the motion and movements of processes like birth and death that we accompany. And in general, we can just contextualize and give companionship for really, really deep experiences in life. Oh, that sounds lovely. It sounds like something that definitely should be a bit more normalized because especially when it comes to birth and death, two of the biggest things that are going to happen, one might argue, you just don't know. You don't know. It's like, all right, this thing is coming up. You go into a hospital and then the thing is done, whether it's whether it's giving birth or whether mm -hmm. it's dying. And there's a there's you know, you might be in pain. You, you might be given loads of drugs, mm -hmm. but you're not told. I don't know, just the the admin of it and the emotions of it. Yes, yes. And it's really nice to have someone on your team who can hold space for your decision-making processes. Like you mentioned drugs. Drugs are a part of birth and death these mm. days, yeah. you know, and helping to be able to say, let me, let me sit down with you for hours if you want and just forecast experiences and forecast expectations for you and say, look, these are some of the things that people have said 
it felt like when they used these certain medications that were supportive, pain relief medications, for example. These are some of the complaints that I've had about it. These are some options that maybe your doctor didn't mention, but you could ask them about that might be helpful to be aware of. Mm. Um, I always prepare people for a a birth experience with self-advocacy tools. So I do role plays with them beforehand where they practice. I pretend I'm a doctor or a midwife and I pretend I'm hard pressed on a certain outcome or um, recommendation. And we pretend for the sake of the exercise that they are not consenting to it in that moment. Mm -hmm. And they practice asking for more time. They practice asking for other options. They practice in the worst case scenario, if they really were deeply uncomfortable with the care they were providing, like for instance, I've had, you know, racist providers where a client said, you know, this is just not, this is not up to my standard of what I need here, asking for a second opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. saying I'm not comfortable with the care I'm receiving. Thank you so much. I appreciate you very much. I know your job is hard. I would just feel a lot better if we could get one of your colleagues in here and just switch out because up until this point, I haven't felt heard. I haven't felt that my needs were seen and it's time for me to, you know, check in and get that second opinion. And people practice using these tools beforehand so that when you actually get to the moment, you're armed with this little toolkit. And you're like, you know what? I have things that I could say because most people, when they're faced with, you know, intense medical decisions involving their care um, or, you know, sometimes unfortunately fear mongering um, or things that medical uh, medical providers sometimes use as tactics to, to speed things along because they're under a lot of pressure most times when they're giving care. Um, yeah. Some of these things, people will just freeze up. Yeah. What, where do you start with advocacy, with self-advocacy? What are some of your, some top tips for people? Because I think that is part of this reclaiming your sexuality and reclaiming your body. If you know that you have, you know, it's, it's given you a good start, hasn't it? It's like knowing that you've advocated for yourself so you can do uh, the birthing, how you want to do it and become this beautiful butterfly. So what are some things where people can remember when they're trying to self-advocate? Yes. Okay. I'm going to give two very practical, easy to remember ideas. (laughs) Love it. Love it. The first one in this life, we have yeses, we have maybes, and we have noes. When it comes to consent, a yes is easy. Nobody worries about a yes. A yes is when a provider comes in and says, or a partner comes in and says, I want to do this. I want to kiss you now. I'm in the mood to have sex, penetrative sex, you know, whatever. There's something on the table. An enthusiastic yes is like, hell yes, let's fucking do it. Let's go. Yes, yes, yes. That's easy. Nobody worries about that. Okay. That's clear. A no is also not too hard. It can be more fraught for traumatized people, but usually a no is something rather clear for us where, you know, somebody comes up and says, Ooh, I want to kiss you. No. Do you know what I mean? No, no right? It's a clear. So in those spaces, for the most part, people aren't, they're not as rife with conflict so often. Maybe is where people can draw more attention. When it comes to consent, the little tip, the little trick is that you can just start, especially if this is a difficult area for you, or if you find that you're kind of like, you're the type of person who sort of freezes up or like, doesn't know how to say no, consider all of your maybes knows for the time being okay yeah because there are so many situations we get into where we're like um, i'm not sure do i want to kiss you now or maybe or no? 
and this this is this is more mainly for like the 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 medical advocacy so you're sat in a in a room and you're being told all your different options and you're like if you're not too sure about something then go for the no's until you can find out more information yes and a no could be i need more time a no could be give me 10 minutes to think it over with my partner a no could be um i'm gonna think about that and then we'll we'll talk about this again tomorrow morning a no could be give me another possibility but a no considering all your maybes knows is the best hack for beginners at boundaries and beginners at self-advocacy because you know you're in a maybe when you're procrastinating Mm -hmm. giving a response and you're getting caught in that uh, you're shooting yourself you feel you're ought to move in a certain direction you're getting pressure to move in a certain direction. You think that there might be something that could come back to you. Like for example, if your partner says, Hey, I want sex and you're not really in the mood, but you're like, Oh, do I want to start a fight over this? Anytime that you're starting to, uh, that hesitation is a sign that it's a no for you for now. That is the cheat sheet that will help you so much. Anything other than an enthusiastic and clear. Yes. Can be considered a no. Love it. What's your second tip for self-advocating when you're just about to give birth and you're going through your birthing options? Second tip is remember these two words, time and options. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're advocating for yourself instead of, so here's the thing. If you're in a medical situation, like the provider says, we want to do an induction today. And maybe it's a little bit more of a complicated recommendation because, you know, everything actually looks really healthy. You and your scan, everything's great on the scans. You have plenty of fluid. Your baby's a normal size. Everything is looking really, really normal. But maybe they're just saying, but we don't let you go past 40 weeks at our hospital. You know, for example, you're running up against something where you're healthy and you're just hitting a policy, right? So these are, these are some of the more fraught decision-making is just trying to pull an example. Um, For still, for some people, that would be a clear yes. But if for you, that would be a no or a maybe. Asking for more time is a better way of negotiating than just saying no to a provider. Because if you say, I don't want an induction, and you just say no, unfortunately, the way that the hospital hierarchy exists, you're creating a, you're, you're disrupting the power dynamic and the status quo of how the hierarchy is run. And when you say no, your provider will usually push you harder. And they might even bring in a team of people and actually outnumber you. There are certain like tactics that are just used often that I've seen really often to put pressure on people because of fear. Um, and so when you ask for more time, you're basically giving them something they can write down in their form that they fill out about the birth because they've lengthy, enormous amounts of paperwork to fill out. And they really do have to write. And options is clear. There are other possibilities and providers, you know, in a medical environment, they're just doing their day's work. They're freaking busy and they're tired and they're stressed and they're just doing what makes the most sense to them in that moment. And they know that you're more likely to agree if they make one strong, clear recommendation. So they'll come in and they'll say, this is what I think is the best path forward. And if it's genuinely not the best path for you, or you're not hundred percent sure saying, is there anything else that we could consider? Is there anything else we haven't tried? It often opens up a whole new realm of the conversation that the provider wouldn't necessarily have thought to offer because they want to give you that strong, clear path towards that clear yes decision. But once you ask and invite it, you'd be surprised how many things come out of the woodwork. Well, we could try a fully bulb catheter. Oh, what's that? You know, that those are your two time and options are your two things. 
This sounds like great foundations because what we want to make sure is, of course, that everyone is healthy, sane as much as they can be after after giving birth. So let's talk about afterwards and talking about the main crux of finding your sexuality and being able to cope with all the changes that your body has made and your partner, talking to your partners uh, about everything that's going on. So where is a good place to start The right time is the time that someone's ready to start. I mean, number one, I would say like no pressure. Yeah. People have come to me 10 years after giving birth and said, I'm beginning to process things that I would like some space holding for. Also time and space to grieve. There is like a dying and a rebirth that is inherent to the process of becoming a parent once or multiple times. In that moment of your past self before this new child entering the picture, whether that child, you know, stays with you a long time or just a short time, you know, also in the event of loss, a pregnancy is an an event that can reshape us as humans, right? Of course. So giving yourself space to grieve who you were before and really feel the release of that can be so important to making space and new room for the next self or the next family constellation, for example, to actually show itself. Um, So yeah, taking whatever time they need. And then often the very first step that I recommend people starting with is just doing, it's so gentle, but just using their eyes to just gaze at their genitals or their scar. Um, a lot of people have trouble touching um, their genitals or their scar after a birth experience. And touch can sometimes be too triggering to jump into right away. So I do see people like online recommend like scar massage or, you know, perineal massage. And those are beautiful practices when you can get there. But number one, and I learned this from a sexological body worker friend of mine, just just looking with a mirror um mm. and and just seeing and then something to help to structure that is you can just name some of the things that you're seeing whether just quietly to yourself or writing in a journal but just saying like i see that my scar is you know really purple on the left side um and then i see that it's a little bit more pink on this area or i see that there's fuzzy hair you know growing in around it or i see that there's a patch where there's no hair and just like noticing things um, can be a really gentle entry point into getting to know your body again. And of course, mm. after noticing, you know, when you feel ready, just holding, you know, rather than jumping into touching or stimulation or vibrators, you know, or any of those things, which can, of course, come along the way, um, just just touching in a way where you're just laying a hand on your vulva or laying a hand maybe on some scarred perineal tissue or laying a hand on the belly scar um, in the event of cesarean births, that can be a really nice thing also to give you the opportunity to just give a message to your body, like maybe communicate some warmth, some compassion, some tenderness, um, some witnessing. And then from that phase, when you feel ready, and that could also be like a week later, then inviting a little bit more of like that massage, maybe with some oil, uh, maybe with some sensuality, but really going at your own pace. It's yeah, there's so many different things that are going on, and we people don't give themselves the time to look back at their body. It's it's all about the kid at that point, or it's all about the 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 birth and and how everything has gone there. So, what can partners do to help if they're seeing that someone is worried about their body or uh, is feeling super self conscious? How can partners begin to talk to them? 
the child giver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Child giver, child birther, child. The person who has just given birth. The person <laughs> who has just been through the fucking ringer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love asking open-ended questions. And this is, you know, a real doula skill set. I really learned this in my in my decade as a doula. It's just asking open-ended questions. I think people jump to yes or no questions a lot. And those aren't always so useful in an intimate context because it actually kind of ends conversation to ask a yes or no question a lot of times. Um, I mean, it depends on the context and the people, of course, but I don't really encourage yes or no. And I don't really encourage any, any question that revolves around the concept of okay. So is it okay if I, um, are you okay? Is it okay if we do this? Um, it's just not going to get you to the core of what you, the information you actually need from your partner in that moment. And it, and if they answer in the affirmative, there's a lot that could contextualize that, that you're missing out on that could Mm. potentially make that interaction unsafe. Um, so yeah, I would stray away from those, but open-ended questions would look like emotional check-in. Can you tell me anything about your emotions in this moment? Or, um, how has your experience been living in your body for the last 24 hours? Or, um, what are you craving in your body right now, most in this moment? And sometimes Mm. the answer will be space, you know, and sleep. I'm in a shower. Mm. And if that's the priority, that's the priority. But again, if you want to ask another follow-up question, another open-ended question, like, you know, I have a craving for intimacy. I want to be in some kind of touch with you. Is there any kind of intimacy you could imagine feeling good right now? Right? Maybe they'll say, actually, yeah, I would freaking love a hug. And maybe you hug and maybe mm. they burst into tears, you know, and then maybe you guys are able to cuddle and maybe you have some kisses and maybe that's a bridge to you reconnecting. But you can see how these open-ended questions are always going to be a more useful entry point for you. And how how uh and what about the the person who's just given birth as well? They've been through, they've looked at themselves, they've 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 held the gaze, they've held themselves, they've gotten a bit more comfortable about what's what's happening and their genitals and their scars. How can they move forwards comfortably and and with pleasure? <sighs> well, one thing that comes to mind is like giving space for the fact that they might be different or feel different Mm. or want different things from before. You know, I think sometimes there's this weird narrative around like getting back or like getting your body back or some sort of past looking focus, Mm. like that you should return to the prior self you were before. Well, for most people, that's never going to, that's not, that's not how life doesn't just sometimes just like somehow turn around and be like, okay, so now we move backwards. Like we're always moving forward somehow. So opening up to new possibilities um, can be really neat. And then definitely this like needs hierarchy. This is like another really practical bit of advice on like sustainability for intimacy and pleasure. But I saw so many times as a doula how the hierarchy of needs that we're socialized into and conditioned into, especially for female socialized people, trans socialized people, is that we should put the needs of the baby first. And then, you know, we take care of ourselves next. And then the partnership is like an afterthought, like barely, yeah. you know, it's like barely even comes into the equation. And yeah. that, that kind of pop culture narrative, that doesn't really serve us. I haven't seen that create strong and sustainable care units within a family um, and strong and sustainable relationships and, and also partnerships. I have seen the opposite and it, it can be very 
kind of, it feels unintuitive for people initially, and it can even feel really edgy. And some people are even triggered by this when I say this, but really trying to practice putting your own needs first at every given possible moment. And of course, I understand that there are times as parents, especially with like a newborn, but not letting that become the rule to where our needs are always habitually 24-7, always sublimated to the needs of the child. It's going to be much more sustainable if you come first. You come first. So yeah, I would say flip the hierarchy of needs and see how that goes for you. And it's not easy, but like just try it. And, And it gets easier. It's like a muscle you flex. It does seem quite a radical thought, but when you look at it in context, it's not going, my needs are always bigger than the kids and I'm always big myself, always first, but all in everything. It's just going, no, I do need just two minutes, just, you know, two to five minutes to have a cup of tea and then I'll go and and sort it. It's not like I'm abandoning my child forever. Right. I just need to keep myself safe. It's it's the aeroplane masks, isn't it? It's all yes. it's just make sure you put your mask on before you go. And we don't tend to do that in anywhere else other than in, in aeroplane crashes. Yes, <laughs> but it is life or death. It is life or death as a parent. People need to pee when they need to pee. People need to poo when they need to poo. People need to eat when they need to eat. And people need to sleep when they need to sleep. It's serious. And what about when it comes to sex and libido and pleasure? Whereabouts does that come on the hierarchy? Yeah, I guess, I mean, there are options, right? Because there are some people who will feel it's time, right? I'm horny. I want this. Okay, great. Use that as your entry point prioritize yourself, Mm. make that happen. There are some people who might feel like I want it to be time, but I don't know how to get there. Yeah. That's also a really good um, invitation into support. And uh, I have to mention Kaufmich, which is a great platform. Um, It's K-A-U-F-M-I-C-H. You can find me on there. My profile is Godex Gem. Godex is spelled G-O-D-D-X-S-S. Mm-hmm. And yeah, strongly suggest doing a little search on Kaufman. See if you can find a provider or see if you can book a session with me, even just a free 15 minute intro call. See if you can get some support and some space holding around what this journey is bringing up for you. Because mm. there might be things that need to be witnessed. There might be, like I said, portals that need to be moved through or to name it, frankly, trauma that needs to be healed um, so mm. that you can make it through to the other side and start to really connect, reconnect with that libido and intimacy. And you deserve that. And you deserve to invest in that. And you deserve to find your wellness in that, whatever that looks like. And then, yeah, once you know, oh, I have the desire. I do think it's like just about making that space for it. So what do you do on Kaufmich when you when you get people in? Are you because uh, you went from being a doula to a sex worker, and I know people who have done it the other way around. So so childbirth didn't put you off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's such a funny question. Oh, well, you know, of course, I had up and down experiences. I would say my the experiences that were off putting actually more had to do with. Um, people's whose like bodies or autonomy or wishes or boundaries were disrespected, you know, witnessing that over and over really that put a damper on, you know, just my pleasure in general as a human being. I I hated witnessing that. Although I was always grateful that I was there because it's like, okay, thank God there's an advocate present. Um, 
so yeah, that was, that was a turnoff for sure. But birth in general, I find super erotic and like <laughs> delightful and like delicious and like sensual and like beautiful. And I will never stop loving birth. I freaking adore birth. I could be around birth all day. I would come home from a lot of my births, like on the biggest rush, like hi, hi on the oxytocin supply. I would like call my ex-girlfriend and be like, Hey, where are you? And she's like, did you just come home for a birth? Yeah, come over. Like I was so... I love the oxytocin rush. I love everything about birth. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's the way that we hold or like our inability to hold birth and the over intervention into birth. That's what really gets me personally. That's my own personal thing. Um, but birth in and of itself, like, ooh, turns me on. Um, but yeah, this like this transition was really interesting. Like I knew that it was time for me to take a real break from birth, you know, after like eight minutes nine years of this doing this completely full-time and giving my entire life to it I was physically burnt out um I just couldn't sustain the on-call work anymore and these calls you know in the middle of the night where you have to your phone rings super loudly and you have to get up and you have to rush off to a hospital and you're working for you know 12 hours plus sometimes sometimes 20 hours worse worst case like 24 hours on a go I just needed to stop doing that um, so that's kind of what took me into considering what other options there were. And I had actually always wanted to do sex work, but I had such painful fear and resistance around embracing that identity and being known as that publicly. And I was raised in the Christian church, which, you know, I've since parted ways from, but this, this Christian kind of, um, oppression, it still lived in my body. And I was scared. Like, what if my mom finds out? Well, okay. I told her and she said, okay, it wouldn't be my thing, but what is she going to do? You know, I'm 30, I'm an adult. Like I'm living my own life at this point. Um, and yeah, it just, it hasn't been as scary as I thought, but it basically the, the transition felt very organic because the skill set that a doula has where you can hold people in extremely high amounts of sensation, where you can hold people in emotional release, um, where you can hold people in voicing and vocalizing wants and needs that they might never have vocalized before. Um, holding people in altered states of consciousness, whether that's the altered state of labor or the altered state of pain or stress or the altered state of pleasure or arousal or orgasm, um, being able to just like take that all in with no judgment and feel completely comfortable with that. And also with like liquids that are squirting uh, everywhere, <laughs> you know, like that, this is, that's the thing, you know, I really felt like it was just moving from like one train and car to the next train car. Like I'm like, woo woo, the same ride. Genuinely, genuinely can't tell whether you're talking about giving birth or being a dominatrix <laughs> now. So that is merge. Absolute. Yeah, definite. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. So when people come in and see you for like a, a session, what kind of things do they want to talk to you about? What kind of things do you go through with them? You know, it, it, so it's very, it really varies from person to person based on their experience level. And, um, you know, it varies from like vanilla sessions mm -hmm. to kinky sessions. I prefer kinky sessions because I'm kinky myself. So it just turns me on more. Any The moment the kink enters the picture, I'm happier. But yeah. I also can offer that more vanilla kind of girlfriend experience type of thing. Even though I don't identify as a girl or a woman, I'm happy to like provide that experience for people. But yeah, I, I would say like a lot of people come to me wanting to explore new things. 
Mm. Like every now and then it's someone who just knows what they like and they immediately ask for it. And they're like, this is what I want. I want us to do A, B, C, and D. That will really please me. Let's meet here at this time on this day. That's so easy. It's so easy to please those clients because they know what they want. But a lot of people are exploring. They're Mm. like, I've never seen an escort before. Or I just recently, just last week, I had somebody who has been monogamous his whole life with his wife. And then his wife asked him for an open relationship and he's never been with another woman ever. So he was like, Oh my God, let me go see a professional because it's time for me to explore. What does sex with anyone other than my woman feel like? Like I'm, or my woman, that's sorry. This German is the (laughs) German. The word for like my wife is my woman's horrifying. Um, But yeah, he wanted to explore outside of that. And so, yeah, a lot of people are like, I'm curious about the idea of a golden shower, but I've never experienced one. Can we try that? Or I'm curious about like a sensual domination session, but I don't want any pain. I'm not a masochist, but I'm curious about the power dynamics there. And I'm like, great, let me introduce you. Let me train you as my submissive. Um, Yeah, a lot of people have like a list of curiosities and that can also be fun to play with. It's such a great little circle to have like a doula, escort, pleasure coach, so that you can go to the people who have given birth and who are looking to explore their libido and trying to get maybe their libido back and use your experience as a uh, as an escort, as a sex worker, and put that into being a pleasure coach. Like, do you find that all three just feed into each other? They do. They do. And it's so exciting for me to feel it because everything's informing and I'm learning. And that's what I loved about doula work the most is that I love learning, Mm. constantly learning. I think with, with escorting dates, the things that interest me the least are the ones where I learn the least, you know, um, there's of course a massive amount of the clientele who reach out to me as an escort who are just straight men who have certain expectations of like, they believe that I'm a woman, they believe that I'm going to behave in the way that they expect a woman to behave. Um, of, of course, I can just like say no to the weird entitled energy, like people coming into my inbox every single day being like, I want to fuck you in the ass. Can I do that? And how much does it cost? I'm like, blocked, <laughs> no. deleted, ew, <laughs> gross, <laughs> get away. You know, this transactional thing, I have no interest in that at all. And it's, it is sometimes... Uh, it's like deadening how much, how just the bulk, the insane amount of energy that exists in sex work that is like based off of that, not because of the sex worker, because of clientele. Um, mm. So yeah, that's been kind of exhausting to to have to like fend off. But in the true, in the end, interactions with people who actually book me and the sessions that I do have regularly, they are great. And I'm, I'm constantly impressed at how vulnerable people are able to be. I never take anyone's trust for granted. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful because I do learn something from every single new experience. And even just for me to be quite honest and very frank on the pod, I have almost exclusively had sexual experiences with women or trans or non-binary people. It's like almost no men entered my sexual life until I became a sex worker. So this was actually like a challenge point for me as I was like, Oh, I'm going to have to open myself to sexuality with men. This is going to be a trip. Like I'm going to learn a lot. And it's been interesting. I've been triggered by it and I've also been humbled by it. And I'm learning how to like lower my defenses and trust. And, um, 
yeah, it's all definitely been, been a really interesting kind of confluence. And I wish that more parents would reach out to me. And that's why I like to do podcasts like this as outreach, because I think there are a lot of parents who probably would love to, but are scared. Mm. And I would say, if that's you, like, just do it. Like, you'll feel safe with me within five minutes. I'll literally walk in the door and we'll all take like a whole round of deep breaths together. And we'll just hold hands and we'll just like have a sip of some water and like talk about what it is you want to experience. And then we'll like slowly invite touch and like undress and like figure out where our pleasure lies, but it's not going to be like, you know, scary. I think that's, that's what people think maybe that they'll be intimidated. But I think the the people who really do go for it and book the experience with a sex worker, it's, it's not intimidating. It's comfy. It's delightful. It's amazing. We're expert space holders. It's basically what it is. I love I love the idea of because uh, one of my, one of one of the things I was going to ask you is um, you know if there could be like one official poster if people walk into a into a doctor's office and there's one official poster up you know you've got like oh make sure you've had these injections and da 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 da, da. and I I just want your poster up there to be like hey I'm available call me afterwards. <laughs> oh. That makes me want to cry. I love that so much. Old-fashioned phone cards that you find in, well, find in the telephone boxes over here still. But I think that should be something that the doctors should be handing out. <laughs> Go and have sex with someone who knows what you've been going through. Yes. If people want to get hold of you, if they want to have this one-stop gem coca shop, which I do, haven't even given birth, but I'm feeling it. Let's. I'll pretend. I'll pretend. <laughs> love it love to have it where can people find you number one gotta mention kaufmich it's a great platform so kaufmich.com and you search for goddex underscore gem just like i said goddess with an x instead of an e or you can find me on my website which is rainbowdoulaberlin.com um, the best way to stay in touch with me is sign up for my email list. I have my own podcast as well called Pleasure Container. Follow Pleasure Container. That's another great way to stay in touch. Um, and yeah, if you're on my email list and you're listening to the pods, you'll you'll be in it. And uh, yeah, you can book coaching on my website. You can book a free intro call, a connection call for coaching. You can book a free connection call if you're curious about escorting. Or you can just go ahead and book an escort date with me. Any of those are options. And I do recommend the connection calls because they're free and there's no obligation. You don't have to continue after that call. You could just take a peek, ask some questions, see how you feel. That's that's the option. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Gem Coca. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have once again delved into the fun bags and I asked for your tales of sex after childbirth. Uh, Now, (laughs) some of them were pretty gory, um, but Aaron, he kicked us off. Aaron on Instagram said, even though a surrogate baked our little bun, we're still exhausted. Are there any tips on how me and my husband can get back on the sex train without medicinal help? (laughs) No. (laughs) You just need to sleep when you can, Aaron. Kelly on Instagram, sex after childbirth. Are you mad? Seven weeks post baby and I want to wrap myself in bubble wrap. You do that, Kelly. There is no rush. That's what I've learned today. It is different for everyone. You start off as slow as you want to. 
Uh, Cassie, she says, I read that it was okay to have sex six weeks after giving birth, but one vaginal prolapse later, and reader, it was not okay to have sex six weeks after giving birth. So my advice is to wait, not feel pressured, and if something doesn't feel right straight away, stop and see a doctor. That is very, very good advice, Cassie. I don't even know. I I don't even want to know what a vaginal prolapse looks like. Uh, but yes, do see a doctor, especially, and definitely stop if something doesn't seem right. That's great advice. Next week, I'll be talking to a kinky webcammer. So send me your stories, questions, and guest suggestions. I'm that Miranda Kane on Instagram, where you can slide into my DMs, Twitter as Miri Kane, or you can email smutdrop at metro.co.uk. I've been Miranda Kane. Smutdrop was produced by Pineapple Audio Production for metro.co.uk. I'll be back to prick up your ears next week and remember don't do anything i wouldn't do but if you do then name it after me i'm ahead of the game